This episode of Back Talk is brought to you by longtime bitch media sponsor Glad Rags, bringing you all of the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn more about cloth pads and menstrual cups, plus get free shipping within the USA on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com. Make sure to tell them that Backtalk sent you. Hello and welcome to Backtalk, the podcast that's a conversation between two feminist people about this week in pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor of Bitch Media. Um, and this week, I am contemplating establishing a day of atonement for email editors. <laughs> in the Jewish faith, there's a there's a Yom Kippur is a day which you are forgiven for all sins. And you get to like start from a clean slate. I need an an editor and writer version of Yom Kippur yeah. where I'm just like forgiven for all the emails I haven't written back to and start with a clean slate um, in my life. So you need a day where your inbox is zero. I need a day of atonement followed by inbox zero. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, I'm Amy Lamb, the associate editor. And uh, this week I'm really excited because I think that if you're a subscriber to the magazine, uh, the latest issue should be in your mailbox, and it's the 20th anniversary issue. Woo! Yeah, that is so, like, that's such a big milestone to think that, bitch, um, the magazine has been around for 20 years. We've been doing this work for so long. Where were you 20 years ago? Jeez, uh, where was I? I was still in high school, I think. Yeah. I was nine years old. <laughs> I was really into the Redwall series yeah. and was probably running around the playground of an elementary school talking yeah. to myself like I was every character in Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, maybe I was in junior high then. I don't remember. Well, I, I'm trying to think of like when I became feminist. I wasn't that feminist in junior high. Mm -mm. But uh, but it's it's really neat to like think about all the work that we've done and like that cultural analysis and how like this work means something and can change stuff. Oh, jeez. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, guys. So yeah, I'm super excited for everybody to read that issue and um, to really think deeply about what it means to have bitch magazine been around for so long 20 years yeah that's a that's a, a baby who grew up and like can vote now <laughs> this is our voting baby <laughs> just in time for the election okay on this show we talk about uh two big pieces of pop culture this week and we're gonna talk about a big abortion rights case that's facing the supreme court and also the the case of kesha the pop artist who's suing sony um but first we always talk about our favorite piece of pop culture from the week um, can you think of what your favorite piece of pop culture is, Amy? Yes. So last week I went to a really fun trivia night that's hosted by my friend Rena and her friend Alex. So they're two women. Uh, one of them is woman of color. And it, like, I actually oftentimes don't like trivia night because I'm really bad at it. And I'm, I'm so bad. At yeah. Trivia. I have a terrible memory and the trivia seems also so esoteric. I'm like, I don't know any of this stuff. Uh, but that night of trivia night, it was ladies night. So it was very like women centric. And uh, I had so much fun and like I knew a bunch of the answers and actually like there were a bunch of answers that I, I would have felt so shameful for not knowing because I work at Bitch. Like there were there were questions where I was like, I literally edited a piece about this. <laughs> if I don't have the right answer to this, I'm going to be so embarrassed. Sometimes it just goes in one ear and out the other. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you give me an example of a trivia question that yes. you got right? Yes. Yeah, so like one was about... Um, like uh, when, like the decade of when uh, tampons and like uh, menstrual cups were first invented, and 
when were tampons invented? Yeah, uh, it first came to market, and I edited an entire piece for the mag like two, two or three issues ago about this. I must have spent like two days working on this. So I was just, I was so hard on myself. I was like, if I don't get this right, I'm going to be in so much trouble. When Okay, so the question is, when did tampons first get to market? Yes, and, and it also it also like menstrual cups, like the cups that catch the blood. I have... I have no bing, answer bing, to this. Bing, <laughs> bing, bing, um, is it the bing, bing, 1950s? 1930s. Oh. Yes. And I got it right. I was so excited. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. So uh, but the thing about doing a trivia night like that was that like it made me really realize that, wow, it's it's really great to have like a very inclusive, like feministy uh, trivia night that where I felt like, wow, m- my base of knowledge is like useful and great. And so it made me really rethink like what trivia nights could be like. And shout out to Trina, Arena uh, and Alex for putting on such a great show. Um, my favorite piece of pop culture this week was a bit by John Oliver about Donald Trump, um, <laughs> where he dug up. Um, I think so many of us have just been having like collective rage at Donald Trump and like not knowing how to cope with it or deal with it. And John Oliver on his show last week tonight dealt with this so beautifully by digging up some history about how Donald Trump's family last name used to be Drumpf. Drumpf. Uh, Drumpf. Drumpf. And so he launched this campaign to rebrand brand to rebrand Donald Trump as Donald Drumpf. And you can download um, an extension to plug into Chrome that changes all Trumps to Drumpfs. And I've done that. And now my life is full of Drumpf. And <laughs> now instead of whenever I it used to be that whenever I would see Donald Trump's name, it would like give me like a little like stress shock. It'd just be like, oh. God. And now whenever I see Donald Trump's name, I'm like, huh. Drumpf. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's a really great segment. It's like practically the entire episode of the show and it's so worth watching. Yeah. All right. So the first piece of pop culture we're talking about this week is an important reproductive rights case that's facing the Supreme Court this week. Um, this week has been a long time coming. It's about the abortion rights restrictions in Texas. And as you know, if you've been paying attention to the news, uh, there have been hundreds of abortion restrictions passed around the country in lots and lots and lots of states. Um, but the ones that are in Texas are the ones that are facing the Supreme Court this week. Um, and what's going on there is that this is part of a coordinated right-wing campaign to roll back abortion rights state by state because um, some strategists, uh, actually, this is a this is a brilliant move. And I I am sorry that this is working as well as it is, but it's brilliant. Where they they saw that they're they're not going to get a lot of um, leverage in rolling back Roe v. Wade at a federal level. So instead, they've been going the route of state legislatures passing these bills that just like chip away at abortion rights, but on the whole, make abortion a lot less accessible. And so right now, um, in in Texas, because of the bill that's known as HB two, uh, there were forty two clinics in Texas providing abortions. If the law is able to stay intact, um, which is what's facing the Supreme Court this week. If the law is upheld, it's going to be scaled down to 10 abortion clinics for all of Texas, um, which is the second largest state in the nation. So that means people are going to have to drive hundreds of miles just to get an abortion. Um, and it's it's up for, for debate what's going to happen to the Supreme Court this week, uh, how they're going to vote on it. And this is a this is a decision that could have national reverberations as if it's upheld, then suddenly all these laws all across the country that say similar things are going to be uh, are, are going to be much harder to challenge. Yeah. So um, speaking of John Oliver, a couple of weeks ago on last week tonight, he did a really great segment. It's only 16 minutes long, but it talks about 
um, these types of laws. They're called TRAP laws, which stands for T-R-A-P, which stands for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers. And these laws, um, from the segment, he talks about how these laws kind of like exploit this loophole in the Supreme Court ruling from 1992, where it says it gives like um, states the ability to create restrictions to abortion clinics um, as long as they don't present an undue or like substantial obstacle to access of abortions. And because that language is so vague, these state um, governments have been able to, to enact these like very small regulations, but have great impact. So the reason why like all these clinics can shut down in Texas is because um, they're framing it as like, oh, we want to uh, protect um, women's health. We want to like enact these little laws so that like women have better health care. That's what that's what like makes me the angriest. Right. I think. Yeah. Is the rhetoric around these bills and what they're using to pass them is saying like, we need to make abortion clinics safer. We need to make them safer for women. And instead, what it's doing is is making our healthcare system way worse for women and adding a real undue burden for, for women and having and um, as these have gone into effect in Texas, we've actually seen the rates of self-induced abortion go up. And we've seen women, especially who are taking the brunt of this, are undocumented women without papers who have to drive past like checkpoints or cross interstate borders and are nervous to go even get like a, a you know, a, a, a health appointment. Yeah, it's it's and and like the regulations that they're imposing on the clinics and why they're shutting down, they you know like they frame it as to protect women's health. Like, uh, like in the John Oliver segment, they talk about how like there's this rule that a hallway needs to be like a specific width, so it has to be wide enough so that like two uh, hospital beds can pass each other. But in a lot of these cases, for women who are accessing abortions, like they they they're not even undergoing like serious medical procedures. They might ha- they might be taking a pill or doing some procedure where it's like not very invasive. So it's unnecessary. But in the legislature, they're framing it as like, we want to make sure that like these women are being, being taken care of in facilities that are, are um, that are like physically appropriate for the care that they're receiving. But in doing so, they're just, they're just shutting down clinics that can't afford to like retrofit themselves. Yeah. And I think that part of of politicians framing this is like, this is a women's health issue. We need to take care of the women is what makes me the most angry And at the Supreme Court level, you've seen a whole bunch of groups filed um, briefs in support of blocking the law. There were 45 groups that signed on to ask the Supreme Court, like, hey, we're in favor of blocking this law from going into effect, including a lot of medical groups like the American Medical Association. You know, that bastion of liberalism. (laughs) The American Medical Association is saying that that these laws are bad for women's health. Um, What they said, uh, the American Medical Association and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists signed a joint brief. And I'm just going to read it aloud because it's like, duh. Okay. It says, there is incontrovertible evidence that imposing these unjustified burdens on abortion providers is impeding women's access to equality evidence-based medicine. HB2, that's the Texas bill, has delayed and in some cases blocked women's access to legal abortion. Both outcomes jeopardize women's health. So any politician who's saying like, we're doing this for women's health, uh, you're going up against the American Medical Association, which says that you're not. Yeah, it's disingenuous and it's a lie and it's just uh, a maneuver and a tactic to chip away at, you know, access to abortion to the point where um, people just can't, even though it's like legal federally, they actually can't even get them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's and it's in such this this framing of it around needing to protect women is such in, in such tradition with 
sort of feeling like women have to be coddled and that women have to be taken care of by the law rather than having equal access to rights and being able to say, I can decide for myself whether this procedure is what I want to do and whether it's safe for me. Like the, the, the politicians are saying, we're going to decide for you what's safe and what's not safe, even if the doctors say it's appropriate, even if it's something that you want. Um the silver lining of this story... Wait, what? The silver lining, silver lining. <laughs> is that uh, Antonin Scalia is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, means that <laughs> it's likely going to come down to a 4-4 vote on the Supreme Court. Um, if it's a 4-4 vote, the law will still be upheld. So... 4-4 vote, if it splits, that's actually bad for women's health. What they need, what we need, is is a majority on the Supreme Court. It needs to go 5-3 in order for Texas's law to be struck down. Because with 4-4, the last ruling on it at the lower court will stand, and that ruling said these, these are fine. Um, I'm crossing my fingers for a 5-3 split on the court so that these laws will be struck down. Yeah. Oh, also... Uh, on our website today, there's a review of this new documentary, Trapped. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is about um, how, how these laws affect re- normal women who are like on the ground who live in these states. And uh, reading about this documentary really is heartbreaking. And then, But I think that it's it's so necessary to see something like that so that we can know what the actual impact is. Yeah, and that documentary just happens to open nationally this week. It's called Trapped, and it opens on March 4th. And it's, an, it's a look at abortion clinics in the South, specifically. Yeah, it's from this this filmmaker named Don Porter who was down in Mississippi in 2013 working on a different film. And then she like heard um, while she was down there filming that there was only one abortion clinic open in the entire state of Mississippi. And she was like, what? And so she called up the abortion clinic and was like, can I come visit you and maybe make a film about you? And so that's what wound up becoming this film trapped. She went and met with them and she was so both inspired by the doctors who were working there and the nurses who were working there and horrified at the state of abortion access in Mississippi that she decided to make this whole film trapped about abortion access in the South specifically. So our next story is about the pop star Kesha and um, a case that she filed in 2014 um, against Sony so that she can get out of her contract um, because she didn't want to be working with the producer, Dr. Luke, who is the man who had originally signed her to her contract. Um, so the, the so what's happened is that um, in her suit, she claims that um, he emotionally, verbally, and sexually abused her, and she can't work with him anymore. And so this case has been going on for a while, and just last week, uh, I went to court where a judge had to rule whether or not she can even go forward with this suit. And the judge ruled against her going forward with it. Um, And one of the most, uh, to me, it seemed really, really heinous quotes to come out of this is um, the judge said that one of the reasons why um, Kesha should, can't go forward with the suit is because quote, my instinct is to do the commercially reasonable thing. And that's that's that was the judge's justification for not letting her go forward with this, because this is a case where um, the judge is saying that there's a binding contract that Kesha signed and she has to stay with this binding contract, um, even if that means that she will still have to somehow work with this producer, Dr. Luke. Um, And also whatever profits she makes, he gets a cut of. So Sony has said that, like, um, actually, it's it's not within Sony's like, um, abilities to squash this contract because what happened was in Kesha's history when she turned 18 Dr. Luke 
um, you know, kind of like manipulated her and took her away from her hometown um, and took her to LA and made her sign a contract with him. And what's happened is she signed this contract with his label, Kimosabi, which is like a joint venture with Sony. And so Kimosabi like retains all rights to her and her work and the and the relationship with sony is that like sony provides like pr support and they get a share of whatever profits that dr luke makes with his music so that's why sony is unable to like let kesha go out of this contract because this contract is actually between her and this and the producer who's abused her dr luke and, and it, yeah i think this is like this this case hadn't been getting much attention until this last decision this last week when suddenly it blew up and everybody's talking about it but it seemed it was really under the radar before there weren't many people talking about this the sexual assault case um and i think that has a lot to do with kesha's persona you know the the role that she plays in the music industry and the public image she puts forth as being like a party girl um and that leads people to dismiss her you right. know or to to say uh, to to not believe her when she speaks up about something like this because, you know, she sings about being drunk all the time at parties and that kind of thing. And there's this writer, Carolyn O'Donoghue, wrote a really great piece about how Kesha's party-hardy persona and lyrics affect the way that the allegations are seen. And she says that, um, here's, I'll just quote from the piece, she says, what Kesha has done is create a musical persona of a party girl, a girl who gets drunk and sleeps around and has a water bottle full of whiskey in her handbag. Whether or not those things are pop artifice makes no difference whatsoever. Kesha is culturally the drunk girl at the party, and the world has treated her like the world treats drunk girls at parties. It calls them liars. It says, you don't know what you're talking about. It says, you just had drunk sex, and now you're calling it rape, and we won't let you. That's that's what writer Carolyn O'Donoghue says, and that's really what I think is going on here. Well, it's it's interesting because in the complaint, you, you see like the extent to which this man, like, like, abused her like verbally emotionally and sexually like he drugged her and sexually assaulted her and and then you know another thing to think about especially with her persona is that um you know she was she was like a child when she came out with him and he she he manipulated her and the fact that she has this persona like i i get the feeling that like he made her perform in this way because in the suit she she says that um you know he would only allow her to sing the songs that he wanted her to sing um and, and whatever opinions or thoughts that she had like he, he would quench them if he didn't like them so he molded her into this star in this fashion so that like maybe you know we would perceive her in this way so there's that piece where we're talking about like an industry wide practice where um where young like young people and young women can be exploited by powerful men mm -hmm. and then there's the other piece where i was thinking about this is how like um this is such a case of like capitalism before like m profits before people how capitalism gets to like how am I trying to say? Well, the, the <laughs> capitalism here gets gets to decide your rights, right? Because the, what the judge is trying to say here is that like I, I can't let you out of this contract because it sets a bad precedent where other people who have contracts like this they might they might try to get wiggle out of it without thinking about what's happened to her personally, like. Even though Sony says that, like, you know, we can create an environment where she doesn't have to work with Dr. Luke at all. She can, um, you know, she can record with any other producer. She can she can be in, like separate states and, and record her music. But Dr. Luke, just by the, the, the way the contract's written, he gets the last say on everything that comes out from her. And uh, everything that she produces, he profits from. So it's like in this sense, like the, the, the law protects is protecting her abuser under the guise of capitalism uh, because it's all about profits and it's like we can't let this contract slide because it'll set a bad precedent then other people can slide out of their slide out of their contracts without thinking about who the person is and like the abuse that she's had to endure under this man who will make money off of her 
So it, it's such a, it's really, it's really mind boggling. And actually, um, Autostraddle had a really great piece by Steph Schwartz. Um, and the piece is called We Asked an Actual Entertainment Lawyer why can't Sony help Kesha? And it really breaks down like the the corporate aspect of it and why um, a big label like that can't actually let her out of the contract. It's because of binding um, contracts that keep her like under Dr. Luke's thumb. And it's, it's, it is, it's also horrifying when we think about that. And, and this is a, another case where it's like, we're having um, our, our courts uphold policies uh that don't benefit people. So at the end of the show, we talk about one thing we read, one thing we watched, and one thing we heard this week. Uh, did you want to start out, Amy, with something you watched? Yeah, because I feel like our show so far has been a downer. And actually, what I'm about to mention is going to be a downer too. So no. I'll, let, I'll let you end the show with all the rad stuff that you're reading and listening to. <laughs> so um, my thing that I watch, I want to talk about Melissa Harris Perry's show. Oh, yes, this on, is a downer. Yeah, on M- on MSNBC. And the reason why I want to bring her up is because like you can still watch some of her stuff. It's still being hosted on the MSNBC website. But um, she was a great like Sunday news talk show host uh she's a black woman and her show just got canceled by msnbc and it's such a disservice to like the general population because it's being canceled in an election year no less but msnbc like slowly pushed her away um and like kept preempting the her show for the last month and just last week they they just flat out said that they were canceling it and her show offers such like a smart critical necessary and feminist perspective and uh, actually on our website veronica Ariola wrote a piece about what it means that her show's not on anymore and in the piece she she talks about how um Melissa Harris Perry show had was like the only um, Sunday news talk show where she had more POC people of color guests than white guests, which is which is unheard of in the, in that realm of like panels and experts, and uh, and and on her show like she had overwhelmingly non-white men guests. She had tw- only twenty five percent, so seventy five percent of her guests were people of color or women. Uh, which, which I was looking at this graph in, in Veronica's piece, and it's, it's such a di- like a difference between like uh, what Fox News panels and guests look like. It was like the complete reverse, where yeah. it was majority white men and like a handful of non-white yeah, men. She's she, her show was the only show to have a majority of guests not be white men. Right. Which is so... It's incredible. It's, that's like yeah. rare on TV. And yeah. Also, uh, on this type of TV show. Yeah. And, yeah. And sad that that's so rare yeah. and now that that's gone. And she changed the landscape and, and it's and it's and her... She started such vital conversations and now that's going to be missing in an election year, no less. And, I mean, her show was so great. Like her show was the first time I saw um, Tani Hasi Coates on a panel. You know, like 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 a, such a forward thinker and like having conversa- like hard conversations about like racial justice, um, like um, sex and just having a, an awesome feminist perspective. So smart. And I hope she finds a home somewhere else. I hope somebody, I hope another station snaps her yeah, up. Yeah, because she's great. And and, uh, and MSNBC made a big mistake. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like super downer right now. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Um, for what I read, I am working my way through every book by Margaret Atwood, uh, my new favorite author, Margaret Atwood. And um, I just read her book, The Edible Woman, um, which came out years and years and years ago, but still feels really relevant today. Um, the Edible Woman is about like a young woman who is kind of trying to figure out what to do with her life. And 
um, is doing what society tells her she should be doing. She graduated from college. She's got a stable job. She's going to get married to a very nice guy. And she's like slowly going insane over the course of the whole book. Um, and it's really funny. I think something that like feminist authors don't get enough credit for is being really, really funny. And this book is, you know, very scathing cultural criticism and a look at, you know, women's inner worlds. But it's like there's so many good lines um, that I just find myself repeating over to myself. Um, a lot of the book focuses on how the men in her life just completely disregard her ideas and overlook her. And she's more like she's more like a symbol to them than an actual person. And um, I keep finding myself thinking about that for some reason in my own life. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh so I, I recommend any book by Margaret Atwood, but I'm working my way through the collection and just finished The Edible Woman. Um, all right. So we end the show with a song. And this week I want to talk about uh, artists who we featured for New Music Monday this week on our site. Every Monday on bitchmedia.org, we feature new music from female-fronted bands. And this week, um, we usually, a lot of the music that we feature is like indie bands and punk and like electronica. And this week it's a funk band. And it's just so fun. When I listened to the song, I was like, yes, I'm going to put this on repeat. Um, the musician here is named Alicia, A-L-I-S-S-I-A, Alicia. Um, and her funk band is called The Funketeers. <laughs> <laughs> and she just released the six track EP called Back to the Functure. <laughs> like, oh, I love the... all these funky puns. <laughs> there's, too many fun... there's so many funky puns. Um, these punkies. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so here from the from the artist Alicia is, is a song, Back to the Functure, off of her EP, Back to the Functure. Just going to keep saying the words, Back to the Functure. Back to the Functure. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Back Talk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. This episode of Back Talk is brought to you by longtime Bitch Media sponsor, Glad Rags, bringing you all of the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn more about cloth pads and menstrual cups, plus get free shipping within the USA on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com. Make sure to tell them that Backtalk sent you. Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org podcast. And be sure to mention propaganda or Backtalk when you donate. We'll read some of our listener love on the air during the next shows. Thanks so much. Back.